0: So we pray together, Father, thank you for your word as we stand before it, help us to stand under it, help us to find our way through it, and help us to find your grace within it. For we pray in Jesus' name, Amen. Not a pearl in sight, if you do have... um, a Bible with you, then could open it at 1 Timothy chapter 2. That's helpful to you to follow uh, what I will try to say. Sorry, we've got both mics on. Should I turn one off? That's why there's a little little bit of whistling. Which one am I turning off? Oh, we're all right. Okay, that's fine. I have to confess that against the margin of 1 Timothy 2, the latter part of the chapter, I have written in pencil some time ago now, I can't remember when. Oh, Paul! Exclamation mark. It is perhaps the elephant in the room, not me, because I'm standing here and you're used to that but what this passage has to say about the likes of me, perhaps, is the elephant in the room. Instructions for worship, and first of all, let's look at a pattern for prayer. Leading into sessions in church is something we're familiar with in the Anglican church. It is a formal thing to have intercessions and perhaps that's encouraged by this chapter when Timothy Paul writes to Timothy I urge it's a strong word I urge that petitions prayers intercessions and thanksgiving be made for all people it is an essential part of worship And those of us who are responsible for prayer should perhaps remember that. It says also we should pray for kings and all those in authority. Well, we're used to criticising our government and those in authority. And I thought this morning as I was thinking about this again, how wonderful that of all the people on earth, we Christians are the ones who perhaps pray for those in authority. In the Anglican Prayer Book, of course, which took all this very seriously, there are many, many prayers for the Queen, or if you've got an old prayer book for the King, you have to be careful if you're using an old prayer book. But the prayer for those in authority is extremely binding on us. To what end? Is this that we might live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness? Let's think about who was in authority in Paul's day. It was, of course, the great Roman Empire. So that was the emperor, that was for whom Paul was urging prayer pray for the emperor. Pray for those in authority. Pray for Herod. Pray for Pilate. They are the ones in authority. And maybe if we prayed for them more, we would live peaceful and quiet lives. And maybe because we don't pray for them enough, that politically we seem to live in the middle of a storm. Paul says, this is good. This is good. This pleases God our Saviour. This is good. Praying for those in authority. This pleases God. Our Saviour. Who wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. It's almost as if Paul is linking, praying for our political masters, governors and living as a result in a place of security also encourages the salvation of the people around us. That's a very interesting link and bears much more thinking about than I have time to take us to today. For, says Paul, there's one God and mediator. In the end, all authority is his. All authority is his. One mediator between God and man. Humanity. Jesus Christ. And lest we fall into the trap of ever thinking that Jesus Christ is just our saviour, we need to remind ourselves he is the saviour of the world. There is no other name given under heaven whereby we may be saved. He is the saviour of all. And Paul goes on to say to Timothy, for this purpose I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. I am a true and faithful teacher to the Gentiles. And therefore, and this links very much with what Jude was saying last week, I want people everywhere, actually he says men, I want men everywhere to pray, so come on gentlemen, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. And remember Jude told us last week when she introduced us to this letter that we were not meant to live in contention and disputes, but we are meant to live in unity and in love. So what of the place and the time? I was interested that uh, in Simon's introducing to us the locality issues, he He said in his prayer, we are here in this place at this time. That is our context, this is our culture. But what about the place and the time? A.D. 66, the city of Ephesus. What was in the centre of the city of Ephesus? Well, it was the great temple of Artemis or the temple of Diana probably the most worshipped deity in all of Asia, in all of the world perhaps, during Paul's time. Immensely popular and hugely influential. And in Ephesus, Terry and I had the privilege of going there a couple of years ago, there were hundreds of unit priests, virgin priestesses, religious prostitutes, all dedicated to the worship of Diana. Worship rituals were quite erotic. She was known as the Queen of Heaven. She was known as the Saviour and the Mother Goddess. Wow. And Ephesus was the centre of all this and possibly the headquarters responsible for maintaining the purity of worship in the temple. The cult of Diana brought great wealth to the people of Ephesus and the temple of Diana was the largest bank in the world at that time. So move over, World Bank. Devotees came from all over the world to worship and celebrate at the festivals, There were huge uh, processions carrying her statues and celebrations were held with much music and dancing, this was the worship, singing, dramatic presentations and vows of allegiance. So what attracted people to Diana worship? The promise of fertility, long life, sexual fulfillment protection during pregnancy and childbirth and the seductive sexuality of the worship well that's quite something isn't it that was ephesus ad 66 the context of paul's letter to timothy So I want you to bear all that in mind as you listen carefully to what Paul says to Timothy. I want women to dress modestly, with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but rather that beauty that comes from good deeds, appropriate for women who profess to worship God. And I would say that that is highly relevant, that we do well to think about what that says, about what is appropriate for us who are women who worship God. But it also reminds me that uh, I worship God with my life, wherever I am, be it in church or on Bondi Beach. So how do I follow this principle of looking appropriate for a woman who professes to worship God? bit challenging isn't it this is even more so a woman should learn in quietness and full of submission some versions say in silence let women be silent I hope you're keeping in mind the temple of Diana I do not permit a woman to teach or to usurp the authority over a man she must be quiet Paul in order to reinforce this brings in a bit of theology for he says Adam was formed first and then Eve. Greg I don't know why you're smiling that's what it says (laughs) and Adam was not the one deceived it was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. Well we can think about that and talk about that a little bit but women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, holiness and propriety. What are we to make of all this? I will say one thing. We cannot just say, well, this isn't about us, this doesn't matter, because it is in the word of God and we as people of God and who love his word need to wrestle with it and need to uh, come to terms with it. Gordon Mersel, who became um, the Bishop of, of Stafford, of course, he was a wonderful Bible teacher, and he used to say when we are faced with the Word of God, there are three things we must think about context, which might lead to conflict, but then will hopefully lead to conversion, meaning acceptance. I've already talked about the context of Ephesus in AD 66. But who is Paul writing to? I want you to remember this is a private letter. I do not think Paul, in his wildest dreams, ever thought that this private letter to Timothy would one day be there for all to read. This isn't a general letter to a church but it's rather advice to a young man who maybe feels, and with good reason, a little out of his depth. I certainly would not have wanted to try to pastor a church in Ephesus in AD 66, the stronghold of the Temple of Diana, also the stronghold of the cult of Gnosticism and divine revelation, which were considered the key to everything, and anyone could gain that knowledge and then proclaim it. We only have to read Paul's letters carefully and thoughtfully to realise that Paul had a constant challenge as the new church came into being, as today, in different places and in different cultures. And of course, missionaries all over the world face exactly the same thing. How are we to plant a church in this culture, at this time, and in this context? And you can sometimes hear him in his letters trying to get his mind around it. He writes occasionally, it seems to me, it seems to me. He had no scriptures. He was a missionary to the Gentiles at a time when some people thought that new Christians should all be rooted in Judaism. He was at times at odds with the other apostles and the church leadership in Jerusalem. He was to some an outsider and an off-comer, a Johnny-come-lately. He had no New Testament. And much of what he knew about Jesus, his life and teaching, what had happened on the day of resurrection, the day of Pentecost, was hearsay, what we call oral tradition, interpreted even as it was shared from place to place, from person to person. The Gospels, even if they were written in part, were not in circulation. He had the Jewish scriptures. He was a scholar of them. He knew God was doing a new thing But what was it and what would it look like? That was Paul's world. And in this context, and this is what his letters are about, he tries to give guidance on almost every aspect of life, probably because he was being asked those questions. We are Christians, we are followers of Jesus Christ. What should we do? How should we live? What does this mean to my family, to my job, to my community? And when we worship, how should we do it? Who should be in charge? What should we do when things go wrong? It's all there. And all we've got are his letters in the New Testament to see how he responded to them. We know there were other letters and there must have been replies and we must have known that not everyone was happy with what Paul said. My daughter-in-law, my son too, used to work in the British Library and she was once on television being interviewed by Giles Brundress And he asked her what the British Library was going to... She was uh, talking about a new book that had been discovered of the love letters of Oscar Wilde. And uh, Giles asked her, but nowadays people correspond by email. Uh, Can the British Library possibly be capturing email? And she said, yes, we are capturing email. And the wonderful thing is you capture the whole thread you capture not just the letter and the reply, but also the question, which gives the reply, the context. So sometimes you and me, reading Paul's letters, can only guess at the context. I said to Terry recently that if we only had the Gospels in our New Testament, our ministry and mission would be very different. Because from Jesus... We have the Gospels as good news, but from Paul we get the theology, which isn't always, at least doesn't sound always, like good news. So if you're an ordained woman in the Anglican Church, or a woman who preaches and leads here at Church Lane, perhaps this chapter doesn't sound much like good news, but rather a cause for the wringing of hands and the gnashing of teeth but at least it should make us ask the question, Lord, what are you saying? This is your word, and how should we respond to it? So here it is, Paul's teaching on the place and demeanour of the women in church in Timothy's church in Ephesus in AD 66. Now for those of us who are older... Much of what Paul says is what we grew up with. And when we were younger, there was nothing here that most of us did not take as normal. It was in 1971 at Trinity College, Bristol, that I was involved in the first major debate on the subject. It was about that time we were electing a student union because we'd just become affiliated to the University of Bristol. And we were required to have a student union. I remember standing at one of the notice boards with one of my fellow students, a man called David. Uh, I asked, "Did he think the president could be a woman? President of the student Union, not of America?" He said, "I've never forgotten his reply. For me, are gay," he said. For me to vote for a woman, she would need to be exceptional. Wow. I guess I didn't qualify. I became the vice president, though. Maybe that has to do. We have come a long way since then. And now the next bishop of London is a woman. And am I thrilled about that? i tell you what I am thrilled about. I'm thrilled that the fact that she, was, she is a woman does not debar her from that position. In fact, Alec Mateer, who was our principal at the time and a great Bible teacher, as some of you know, summing up the debate said this, as I look at Scripture now, this is how it appears to me, but I am willing for God's Holy Spirit to help me to see it differently. I've never forgotten that. I thought that was the mark of a truly humble and amazing Bible teacher. So does this teaching of Paul's matter today or shall we just ignore it? No doubt. There were many women in Diana's temple who were listened to and sought after. It has been said that Victorian ladies were very witty and entertaining and sought after by men who wanted good conversation in case you thought they were sought after for other reasons, but who at home had a demure and obedient wife. Diana was the goddess of fertility and no doubt worship at the temple was loud and lusty in every way. And here was Paul teaching Timothy, guiding Timothy, who is trying to oversee a small church in this context. Some of its adherents would have come straight out of the temple of Diana, whereas others would have been worshippers at the Jewish synagogue. Syncretism is a mark of every single church. Every church is the result of its culture, and context. Terry and I only really began to appreciate that when we became missionaries to Korea in 1977. And we had to ask ourselves the questions, were we Christian British or were we British Christians? There is a world of difference. Do I look at the Bible, at Jesus, through the eyes of God or do I look at it through the eyes of my culture? And the best will in the world. Most of us look through our cultural lenses. And we look back as we are today here in Church Lane, twenty eighteen. We look back at this letter of Paul to Timothy, and without even consciously doing it, we impose on it our way of thinking, our cultural views, and our acquired theology, whatever that is. But that was then and them, and this is us and now. We know that Jesus redefined the role and view of women in his time, but the effects of that were not yet realised or applied. We are celebrating a mere 100 years since women were able to vote in this country. Our culture in Britain has been patriarchal for centuries and reinforced by what people have learned and said the Bible taught, just as in South Africa where I grew up, apartheid was supported by the word of God, as has been Our cultural attitudes to slavery and women. I've done lots of weddings. Who gives this woman to be married to this man? I do, replies the father, because she's mine and I can do with her whatever I like. That was true. That was true in this country. And we may criticise arranged marriages in other cultures today and forget that this is how it was for us too. Today it's a token sentimental gesture that all fathers love. In fact, it's not in the wedding service anymore. But I've yet to meet a father who doesn't want to say those wonderful words, I do. We have a woman prime minister and a queen and much else that would be unthinkable and unimaginable in Timothy's time. And yet, you know, the Bible is full of amazing, strong women, good and bad, the Old Testament, just as it's full of amazing, strong men, good and bad. You just have to read Proverbs 31, the description of an amazing and accomplished woman. If you've not read it for a while, do read it. It's wonderful. Just a tiny bit of it says this. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, he praises her as saying, many women do noble things, but you surpass them all. Lydia and Priscilla were around. Instruction and leadership was given by them and the early church. And church history, early church history, and mission is littered was the powerful influence of Bible women and women who faithfully taught their children and their whole household. And we come to the tricky bit. Time runs out, Simon, sorry. What of the childbearing that saves? Because not every woman in this church this morning has born a child. And Paul says she shall be saved through childbearing was he talking about the childbearing, the bearing of Jesus by Mary, which saves us all, men and women alike? Or did he mean perhaps that that childbearing, which was part of the Genesis curse, was now under the protection of the gospel of salvation? But also remember that Diana had something to say, about childbearing and pregnancy. She was the saviour of all that. Many men were led astray in the temple of Diana. Is that why Paul reminds Timothy of Eve in the Garden of Eden? I don't know. Did he think it was a lesser sin to be persuaded by Eve to take a bite of the fruit? than to be deceived by the serpent. Thankfully, in the book, Letter to Romans, Paul says, as in Adam all die, even so in Adam shall all be made alive. There's no mention of Eve in Romans. Different context, different argument. And as I close, let me just say this. I suffer not a woman to teach or have authority over. The word therefore, have authority, means to usurp authority. Well, I hope this morning I haven't usurped anybody's authority. I was invited to preach this morning, as is everyone, by the elders. Authority is given, it is earned, it is merited, it is not usurped. So I just want to say the leadership and teaching of women in the church today is not some sort of female takeover, some extension of feminism, and if it were, I wouldn't be part of it. But that God is owning and blessing and endorsing the ministry and the place of women in his church worldwide cannot be dismissed, disputed and hopefully we are all blessed because of it some of us are sad that it remains a contentious issue we women most of us many of us no longer worship with our heads covered for fear that we might take glory from god dishonor our men and cause problems for the angels you wonder what I'm talking about. It's Paul's teaching on women in 1 Corinthians. And how glad should we be that the gospel of Jesus Christ brings equality and recognition to both men and women, young and old, slave and free? That we are not all just one in Christ Jesus, but we are also gifted to minister to one another through our Saviour and his Spirit of grace. Amen.